Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 120-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and other podcast shows. If you're interested, just go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. Uh, if you got something really cool working with v6, we want to hear about it. Uh, I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Kafina Scott Hoog, and today we're going to be talking about IPv6 and sort of its, if it's practical use for small and medium-sized businesses. Um, we're talking about this because Anthony left us a comment in the latest episode, the uh, 77, and, and we thought it would be a great topic to sort of walk through. So let's jump in and let's start talking about it. So guys, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think many small businesses may not be thinking about, you know, transitioning to IPv6 because they have smaller infrastructures and they may not be hitting up against IPv4 address limitations. But one of the things that may be keeping them from implementing IPv6 is fear of vendor lock-in. If they only have a single upstream ISP, they aren't using BGP, they would then, and maybe they don't qualify for a provider-independent prefix from their RIR, they're using, or they would be concerned about using provider-assigned address space from their one ISP and fear of vendor lock-in. Hmm. And, and and how do we solve this in V4 today? I mean, is, there's there's techniques that we do in V4. Maybe we should quickly sort of talk about what the, maybe the standard deployment for small to medium-sized businesses might be for, for V4 uh, today. There's a couple of techniques we use, which is you know, network address translation and then port address translation, very commonly done at the, at the edge, at that internet edge, right? And that gets rid of the problem of, because really we're talking about with lock-in, the big fear is what, renumbering? I mean, that's really a primary fear, especially where V6 is concerned. And yeah, you don't, yeah, you don't I have think, to deal with that in IPv4 because you're just natting at the edge. That's exactly right. And and also we're we're doing a couple of things. We're probably hiding like a large number of hosts behind a few V4 addresses. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a other common sort of use case scenario. So it allows the service providers to, to dole out or or maybe to, you know, narrowly hand out <laughs> IPv4 public addresses, but allow a, a firm that has, you know, a, a small business that has maybe, you know, 50, 100 devices behind it to all utilize that maybe single IPv4 address, right? And so that's a different mentality. And this is just a delight, design philosophy and, and, and practicality around V4. We don't have that same limitation of V6, right? We can just hand a slash 64 down to the customer uh, from a service provider basis and they can have as many devices as they want on their network. You're never going to run into a structural issue there. But you will be using those addresses inside your network in order to provision those addresses on a host, right? And so that's the part that Tom and Scott were talking about is that you might be a little nervous about having that sort of lock-in. But the reality is, is that if you move to a new provider, they're going to provide you another address space and you're just simply going to renumber into that. More than likely, you're probably dynamically, most of your hosts are dynamically getting their address. So you just reboot them and they'll come up on the new network. Uh, and for the few maybe server devices, you might have to statically or manually set up an address. Does that feel sort of right, you guys? I don't know. Yeah, if you're a small medium business, you probably have a business class of, you know, broadband internet access. You're not using a residential class of service. So, if you're using a residential class of service and it was a really small business, like a really tiny office, then maybe you only get a slash 64 with DHCPv6 prefix delegation. But if you were using a business class of service, that small business could get a slash 48 mm-hmm. from the provider. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's totally reasonable. And I guess there's a there's a larger issue here related to the value of 
IPv6 adoption in that in that setting, you know, where it's th there's a trade-off because it's easier to do theoretically. There there are just fewer resources to have to contend with in terms of you know getting them up and running on IPv6 or making sure that the IPv6 is, that's already running on them is properly managed. So that that's true, but then it's also true that you know it's much easier to manage the smaller number of addresses that the small medium sized business is going to have. I guess I guess really the boundary there's like a, probably a boundary here that we're feeling our way towards in terms of operational complexity and and how much that's exacerbated by IPv6 or how much it just really doesn't make much of a difference between IPv4 and IPv6. Also, you know, in with us SMB, they could be using NAT for IPv4 and so they use 10 space or one you know RFC 1918 address space inside and they just NAT out. And maybe their network is so small that they really just have connected subnets. They don't even use the dynamic routing protocol inside. Mm -hmm. But with IPv6, then they would have a slash 48 and they would break out individual slash 64s for all their different VLANs. And they may also be connected subnets or they could use static routing as well if they didn't have operational knowledge of how to run an IGP. And they definitely don't have knowledge of running an EGP, PGP. So they could have the same operational model. Yeah. And I, I'm curious you guys, if you think this is just going to happen to them automatically, that's sort of my gut feeling for the super small ones that might be closer to residential. They're just going to get V6 and mm -hmm. be dual stacked, which is sort of similar to the, the I think to um, how residential subscribers are getting it is, is it'll start moving in, the, in a similar fashion. I don't know what what your guys' thoughts are about that. But I, I think for those that fit in the sort of dynamic, you know, much smaller on the small business space, I think they're going to look like residential. They're just going to get it automatically. And that's the example of where we see V6 operating exactly as the divisors and developers of it intended it, right? I mean, it just, it just works, right? You just turn it on and it works and the customer probably isn't all that much all the wiser. I mean, I don't want to gloss over the fact that it's 2021 and, and that's that's the environment we're in now. If you tried it in 2011, you might have, you know, wildly different results and, and result in a lot of uh, pain and suffering for a small and medium-sized business that just, you know, got cut over to V6 and certain things aren't working and they have no idea how to do host troubleshooting and that sort of thing. So I'm not saying it worked flawlessly now, but it, you know, I think we're definitely in a better space where... A provider, a broadband provider could just turn it on and it works works for the customer. Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair statement. I don't think that's something too unusual in terms of in terms of where things are at today. I, I suppose it's that mid-tier business class service that is going to be a little bit more difficult. Maybe you've got like a corporate head-end office and, and, a, and a few ro remote sites and maybe you do a small VPN service to connect all your sites together because you don't pay for a WAN service, right? You just use, you know, whatever, a Fortinet or a, you know, Palo Alto, and you've got these running at your, your site locations and you, you home everyone back to the corporate office to get to file shares or something that's, you know, maybe more classic, sort of classic older school design, as opposed to going like all cloud, like, you know, my gut feeling is so many, so many companies now are just going all cloud. And it's just, you're only using internet connectivity just to basically get to exactly that, the internet to get to public cloud services, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, or SaaS services. SaaS services. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. But I feel like if you have a slightly older topology and design, and you need to carry that forward because you're not you're not you're not adopting SaaS, or you have a special application that was built internally, and you need these VPN services. Does anything change for you in terms of adoption for V6? What does it look like for them? Yeah, because you they're probably paying for a business class of service to get a static, non-changing 
V4 address Mm -hmm. so they can create those land-to-land, site-to-site tunnels across the internet. When they get, you know, V6 address, they would also have a a non-changing, you know, global IPv6 address that they could terminate those tunnels. So they could build those site-to-site tunnels over IPv6 transport. It would just be a matter of, you know, V6 enabling that external interface on that VPN concentrator or their firewall. But they'd have to rebuild those, you know, site-to-site, land-to-land tunnels. They'd have to go visit all those other remote sites and change their configurations. And they would need IPv6 enabled at all those other, you know, small branches or leaf sites. So, so let's noodle over that for a moment. Let's just assume we do a hub and spoke design. We're not fancy and we're not doing like EMVPN or anything else that, mm-hmm. that might be dynamic. If we were doing a hub and spoke back to a corporate office and we had like three branch office site locations, mm-hmm. you know, when you're thinking and noodling through it, are you going to do V6 over V6 tunnel and V4 over V4 tunnel? How, how are you going to think about, because I'm assuming all the sites are still going to stay V4, right? Like we're still going to have V4 operating for, for those sites. Would you split them up? Would you run V4 on V6 uh, across the tunnel? Would you run V4 and V6 across the V6 tunnel? Like what's, what's your thought <laughs> and, process? And these are exactly the kinds of questions that are swirling through your mind if, if that's your topology that you're trying to... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, why I'm at, that's what I'm sort of asking yeah. is like you sort of sit down and you're like... And, and, and maybe we don't have the answer right at the moment. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like with every good consulting answer, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. right? Yeah. Pay me more money and I'll tell you the answer. <laughs> My kind of gut instinct says that for the future, they would be tunneling V4 and V6 inside of V6 transport yeah. you know and that the v6 would be used for the outside of the tunnel you know and inside the tunnel would be v4 and v6 but again i keep coming to the back to the problem of that if that slash 64 that they're using on that you know internet perimeter is provider assigned and they go and put that global ipv6 address and in, into the configurations of all their branches and they're locked in, you know, and if the provider changes, now that slash 64 changes. You write a script and change it out, right? I guess, I guess it's a, it's a quick automation, the tert automation answer. Well, you just automate that and just replace it. Really quick. Yeah, but SMBs. <laughs> yeah, I know. They just have to go in. It's, it's a, a lot of stuff that yeah, is done they just manually. Go in and, manually and, change. <laughs> and they don't want to have to remember to do that if they were switching providers. Well, I guess they would have to do that if they were switching providers with IPv4. Yeah, that's sort of what I would argue is that is that even with V4, they're going to have to do that. They're going to get a new address space for V4 because they're going to move to a new provider. They're going to go around and change all of them. So they're just changing two things mm-hmm. instead of one thing uh, at the same moment uh, throughout their network. And I don't think that's anything that's a big jump. I think maybe for me, the the biggest thing that I think of from an operational basis for all those folks is that they they have common address spaces that they're used to thinking about for those remote sites. So I've got remote site A and maybe it's, you know, 192, 168, one dot. And then, you know, my next remote site is, you know, 192, 168, two dot. And, you know, because it's only, it's flat and it's a single subnet that I need there, or maybe it's a 172, mm-hmm. 16, and we do one, two, three, whatever. And we give it, mm-hmm. we assign it's, you know, 17 and 18 and 19, right? For the next mm-hmm. <laughs> sequence and give them a larger address allocation. Right. But this is totally different in V6, right? We don't think of it that way. We think of, we're tunneling the specific global addresses across this tunnel connection. So maybe we have a distinct 64 back behind that we gave that we were given as an addition to site one 
So site one's got two slash 64 prefixes in use. One of them I can use to set up for the public facing side and, and use for my VPN tunnel. And then I've got another one that sits behind it effectively mm-hmm. that I'm going to tunnel across it. So your ACLs are going to look very, very different, right? In terms of how you actually define what's interesting traffic that gets tunneled, right? What gets stuffed into the tunnel versus what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that could be potentially confusing for many of the professionals who run, who are not day-to-day network engineers. They're simply just maybe systems folks or, you know, more general technologists that are running these sorts mm-hmm. of devices and trying to figure out, you know, well, which one do I match and which one goes into the tunnel or doesn't go into the tunnel, right? I could see some confusion happening there just because it's a global address going into another global address, right? From a tunneling basis, that could be a little confusing. Yeah, even, and even just basic things like trivial, if you've been working with V6 for a while, but when you first get introduced to it, it's it can be really confusing if you're just steeped in V4, you know, the, the subnet mask, like where's the subnet mask? You know, I, I don't right. know where to plug that in. It's like, you, you're probably familiar with CIDR and, and CIDR notation, but, uh, you know, you're used to doing things in V4. And so that's the first thing that you have to learn that it's not there. You're just going to use CIDR notation. And so that could be confusing. The address format, I mean, I, we shouldn't gloss over how challenging that is initially, especially as you say, if you're not a networking, if you're not focused on, you know, networking all the time and you've got to, you know, you've got to wear a lot of hats in that small environment where you're handling a lot of IT tasks and the network is just one of them. You know, so the first time that you have to start chewing through what a V6 address is and figuring out what the format is and, and you know, dealing with hex and all that. I mean, that's, you know, that just getting th- past that to the point where you have some facility with it can be really challenging. So, I, you know, I guess I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that that there's just really basic things about V6 in that environment where, you know, the ex, you have to have expertise in a lot of different areas. And if you, if yeah, you don't... I think- just even the address assignment side, right? DHCP v6, right? Oh yeah, Slack, yeah, exactly. Full stateless, right? Like, that's, we that's go through all these iterations. Matter. Yeah, like if yeah, if you're an enterprise, if you're in a larger enterprise, it's like you at least have some. You've been exposed to at least some of the the challenges with it. But if you're, well, but I, yeah. I, I think everyone is used to doing DHCP and v4. It is the way to hand out addresses. It's super common. It's just the way that we're all used to it. And occasionally we're setting up some static stuff and we understand that you just leave that out of the DHCP pool, right? Mm-hmm. And so operationally, it's pretty straightforward. But I think with v6, understanding how the functional aspects work of like, you know, router advertisements, how does neighbor discovery work? Like what impacts do these, does this have on me and how do I actually assign this stuff out? And, and it doesn't match one for one for what you're doing in V4. And I think that's probably the bigger learning curve that I think many is going to challenge a lot of people who are in the, the small to medium sized business space, right? Who mm-hmm. haven't seen that before and really don't understand what's going on there and are scratching their head going like, I don't understand why is this different? Like I, I'm trying to put in a default gateway in my DHCP server and it's not there's no way to put it in. Like, I don't understand what's going on. I must be messing this up. There's no way this is functional. There's no way this could work, right? That's the first thing I would think if, if I'm a V4 <laughs> right. person. There's, there's, there's no default gateway. There's no way this is going to work. <laughs> and then that's that moment where they're, they're sort of lifting the, the lid on the black box that is IPv6. Exactly. Backing away slowly like, oh, no, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to have to deal with this. <laughs> It's just in the form yeah. of, as you say, DHCPv6 versus Slack and, you know, dealing with, with the issues related to that and even some of the religious wars we've gotten into, you know, uh, which you don't care about at that level. It's just like, I just need this to work like it works in before. And yeah, I, I, I think that's going to be a, a big issue. And then statically setting something up, you know, or manually assigning an address for those few servers that you need and then, you know, picking the right address and then 
Like, how do I line up, you know, the first instinct V4 to V6, how do I line up my addresses so that they have, you know, I can, I can identify this host again. And right. Then, and maybe that's not so dangerous in that environment if it's a smaller I, environment. I, yeah, I don't think so either. I think, I think that's okay. And then uh, I think the other one that's going to be the head scratcher is, is DNS, right? It's like, how do I, you know, how, how's this thing name resolving? Like what's going on here? And yeah, I guess fortunately that's the one that, that is probably the least sophisticated or complex. The one that's probably the, the most like V4, which I, maybe, I don't know if that's true, but I, I think it is intuitively. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I think it's just, you know, that, that I think we're, maybe we got a few things right. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> quad A records seem to be pretty straightforward and, and, and not too complex. I suppose the only thing that would make me scratch my head and, and you know, Scott had mentioned this, you know, in a previous show about how do you do lookups and, and how does the name resolution happen and what order does it happen in, right? I think that's something where as a system administrator, I sort of want to understand, is it going to use V4 or V6 first? Like what's the mm -hmm. behavior sets? And some people think that's tied to DNS versus whether it's tied to host OS behavior and don't understand the subtle differences, right? Between yeah, the two. It's a good point. And I think that's that that can be a real challenge. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if there's an easy answer for that one. You guys. Well, we, can, we can at least pro provide some clarification there, right? I mean, at least with, you know, with most of your queries, you're getting both an A and a quad A. And so it, it, the operating system is making that choice. So there you go. I mean, if you're not familiar with IPv6, it, it's, it's a host OS choice of, of which to use, and it's not related to DNS per se. Yeah, unless DNS doesn't reply back. With unless a piece it doesn't of reply back, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's, that's the sort of the order of problem solving as you're going through is that you want to, you know, for those that are into Wireshark and packet sniffing is, you know, you take a look at that DNS query. And if, if you never see a, a quad A come back, that's why it's not using V6, right? It's because it's, it's not getting an address back for any sort of name resolution that you're doing. And so you need to go fix that as a, as, as a problem space if you want it to use V6. If you don't, then it's working just as, just yeah, as you probably right. In most cases, you probably don't care because it's like, I'm trying to get to this site and yeah, it's I'm just trying to get to it. And V4, V6, it doesn't matter for me, uh, you know, at that moment in time. Yeah, yeah I, I think those would be my my quick quick and sort of you know because I think namespace and resolving names are is a b very big issue in small to medium sized businesses, right? Those split scope DNS related issues, right? Split zones and and how folks you know make stuff work and don't work is is probably pretty high on the list for many small to medium sized businesses. I don't know what your guys' gut feeling is, but I think that's I, even for big enterprises that's a big deal, right? Yeah. <laughs> getting DNS to function correctly the way you, you, you expect it to. And then what's exposed to the outside world and what isn't. And maybe that's more complicated with V6 than with V4. I don't know. You don't want to leak out certain information on, in your zones and make that available to tell everyone where your server is located in this global unicast address. I mean, you're still going to be blocking things with your firewall. At least I hope so. <laughs> right? Or, or have some sort of protections around it. But I guess maybe you don't want to advertise what, what that address is potentially. If it's just at a, at a branch office location? Yeah, I guess we'd be negligent if we don't mention, because this is exactly where you, you're just going to be thinking in terms of NAT, you know, because that's what you've done in V4. And so it's exactly. like, well, I'm, yeah, so a small business and, you know, I've, I've got to run the network, et cetera. I'm like, okay, well, I'm doing this today with V4. I'm, I'm using NAT. How do I do that in V6? Where do I turn, where's the IPv6 NAT that I'm just going to turn on? And I'm going to get that one address and, you know, do port overload yeah, don't shoot me, but I mean, they could absolutely do that. Exactly. <laughs> With a certain yeah. brand of firewall that does NAT 6.6, even though that's not an official RFC, they could do that same process. And in that environment, maybe it's not really a big deal. I mean, we, you know, we inveigh against NAT 
quite frequently in larger environments for what I think are good reasons. But in this environment, maybe it, it's kind of a trivial thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's and it's it's funny because there's a set of I wouldn't say it's necessarily security concerns, but there's a set of simplicity, operational simplicity around NAT and PAT combinations, right? And really, what we're talking about is 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 sort of the network address, you know, but but overloading in regards to you know NAT six six and and sort of hiding everything back behind. And I think there might be functional good reasons to do it, and just has to do with just simplicity, <laughs> yeah, exactly. operational simplicity, yeah. which is you know. Never discount operational simplicity <laughs> as being a major advantage in, in, in terms of just making your life easy to, to figure out what's going on. And I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot to that. And, and maybe it's, uh, and it's difficult for people to realize, especially with V6, you know, that you're going to have multiple things, multiple addresses associated with a host. Like this is link local. Like we haven't even talked about link local. And so I've only been talking about global unicast, but there's this like whole concept around link local and how that's working in you know, I, I think that's problematic for folks that are trying to figure out like, how's my stuff routing? Where's my next hop? Like they, when you're trying to troubleshoot, those those aren't trivial things, you know, within themselves. And I think they can be very confusing for people too. So, so maybe an SMB also gets confused because they're like, well, okay, I'll just do it the way I used to do it with IPv4 and I will use NAT 6.6 and my firewall supports that. And I think I prefer stateful NAT 6.6 that my firewall vendor says works, and it seems like it's configured with a pool and it, it works just like I used to have, you know, I'm familiar with the configuration of the GUI or the CLI to get that done on my you know, internet perimeter firewall. And I maybe prefer that over stateless NPT v6. Mm -hmm. I don't know quite what that does. So then what then the SMB is confused with, okay, what, what address that, space do I what use? What is my V6 equivalent of RFC 1918 that I use inside? Yeah. Oh, I read this book and I think I'm going to do 2001 DB8 because that's what all the examples showed. Or I saw this vendor's config and it used FD 0000000. Right. Yep. <laughs> and didn't follow the RFC for randomizing the next 40 bits after the FD. Right. So, or just used FC, right, which is <laughs> right. reserved. And so they follow an example and it leads them down the wrong path. Maybe but they're maybe confused there anyway. and that stalls them. Yeah, but maybe it all just works anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe to Tom's point, maybe that maybe that does make sense. Here, and, mm -hmm. and for the listeners that may not be familiar, the 2001 DB8 address space that, that Scott mentioned is, is the documentation prefix. It's a colon colon slash 32. It's a, it's a slash 32 of, of documentation prefix space. And you're going to see a lot of, obviously, documentation written <laughs> with this address space. And so I, I would not be surprised to see like an SMB who'd be like, oh, well, that's what I see in the docs. That's what I'm going to use. This is, the, this is what's written up in the example documentation. That's what I'm going to use. I'm going to turn on this NAT66 thing because it's available in my firewall. It gets an address space, you know, automatically on the outside. Maybe it's doing DHCPv6 PD and gets a 64 and we're off to the races and it's got an address. And look, I can surf the web to a V6 only address space. I, I test my V6 only and, and, and it, it appears to be working. Or worse, far worse. I read a book from 2003 and it said to use FEC zero. <laughs> <laughs> and you cite local addresses. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's. 
Yeah, uh, and that's quite possible. Or, you know, you, you, reading old enough stuff, you know, you set it up with six bone address, three FFE. And, <laughs> right. well, and what's, <laughs> no, the, no. what's the worst that's going to happen in that case, right? It's just not going to use IPv6? I mean, because just because the Could, stack... It just this, uses V4 more It just often. uses V4, yeah. yeah. just uses V4 and doesn't use V6. Even though you think you have it set up, it's not actually doing anything, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, which might introduce a whole set of, of failure scenarios that is even more frustrating to figure mm -hmm. out what's going on, which would cause SMBs to be like, you know what, let's just turn this V6 thing off. <laughs> right, because yeah. we don't know what's going on. Like we can't figure it out. We don't understand it. And I, I could see a big set of frustration. And I think, you know, the downside is is, is most of the service providers and most of the mid to mid sized consulting shops really just don't know V six, so they can't help their customers at all. So they're they're just going to say, well, yeah, turn it off or you know use V four only or or something like that. I think that's yeah. that's still probably a very common answer. My gut, my gut, yeah. Yeah, because SMBs might rely upon a managed service provider to help them with their IT configuration because they don't need a full-time IT staff. Exactly. And so, you know, one one aspect of IPv6 that could give them cost savings is, yeah, okay, now I don't need public V4 addresses for all my sites. I can save, you know, 20 bucks a month per site times 12 months. That adds up over time. But then as the managed service provider, the managed service provider is managing IT environments for 200 different small businesses in that city, because maybe right. they're just regional. Mm -hmm. And they're like, man, every one of these sites looks different and they all overlap with 10 space. Maybe it's a be benefit to the, to the MSP to deploy all of their managed services customers proactively with IPv6, get them all global address space that doesn't overlap. Now the MSP can natively manage resources in those companies they support and then don't have to deal with NAT as much because they often, you know, put a small appliance at each one of those SMBs so they can remotely manage, control, do right. virtual desktop sessions to help users troubleshoot, you know, and do support of servers and software and applications inside those SMBs, yeah, maybe uh, it's a it's a benefit to the MSP to use global V6 for their customers. Yeah, that's a great point because I think people forget RFC 1918 reused re over and over again. You can have collisions, right? Where you're mm -hmm. on the same 10 address space as someone else on the other side and you're trying to VPN from your site to their site mm -hmm. to remotely support them. You have to literally translate yourself twice, right? To to get the, the traffic to move in the right direction in order to address or solve those problems. So yeah, that's... It's not uncommon. No, yeah, maybe think, that could be a competitive advantage to one MSP is, hey, we've deployed IPv6 for you and we've future-proofed your network. And then if that company wants to switch to another MSP, the other, the second MSP comes in and says, oh, you're doing IPv6. We don't know that. <laughs> so we can't take over your account. So you have to use MSP number one because they were the ones who know how to set up IPv6. Is, are we saying that's vendor lock-in that we're, we're <laughs> that's gonna, another vendor lock-in? <laughs> yeah, we're, no, we're behind that though. We're like, yeah, <laughs> that, that, we're all for that. And in fact, if you're that, <laughs> we want to hear from you. If you're that MSP that has figured out how to use IPv6, yeah, totally. <laughs> please IPv6 call for us. Vendor lock-in, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but on the other side of vendor lock-in, the thing we haven't talked about, which is often talked about in the IETF, how do we solve? you know, a SMB that's using provider assigned address space from an ISP A and now want to switch to ISP B and need to renumber, how do they do that? You know, they could, they could do 
NAT66, they could do NPTV6, they could go through and just do the process of renumbering, and maybe their environment's small enough that that you know, maybe only takes an afternoon. Or there's a set of other standards that are available, like RFC 8475, sending out conditional routing advertisements <laughs> for enterprise multi-homing or source address, you know, SATR, you have uh, source address, source address dependent routing. Yeah. And you have these other methods of sending out to an RA with two different prefixes or using provisioning domains inside the routing advertisement to say, hey, this network has two IPv6 addresses, provider A and provider B. Use provider A most of the time, and we prefer that. But if it link to provider A goes down, switch over host, start using the alternate prefix to maintain continuity. Yeah. There's a lot of RFCs and drafts. Uh, but the dust hasn't quite settled on what may be consensus or what SMB should a, use. That's right? a whole other show, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's a whole other show. <laughs> well, I I think we answered most of the sort of SMB, maybe the the quick and easy. There's probably more that we could dive into in, in more detail about like implementation and like operational issues mm-hmm. around this. But I but I hope this was at least enlightening for for the listeners and, and Anthony. Sent you know really appreciate you po- you sort of posting and asking, but. Uh, you know, as a as an intro set, I think we did a pretty good job sort of covering what we think are, are sort of those use cases yeah. and what's going to happen uh, for many of the uh, organizations. And I think the only thing I, I, I pivot on really quickly is and, and say is, I think as you're going to see more and more, you know, I think SD-WAN and other solutions happening, for, moving downstream from enterprise into mid and small business market space, right? I think that will change a little bit of the landscape of how some of this stuff works. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is you're still just going to get your V6 address trace from your provider. You're still going to use it. And that's what you're functionally going to going to use and deploy within your environment. And if you change service providers, just realize you're going to have to you know change some addressing within your site topology. And that's going to be that. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, to summarize our list of next steps, if you're an IT administrator at an SMB or an IT administrator in an MSP that supports you know, SMBs, you know, educate yourself on IPv6, maybe start to, you know, play with it at your house and understand DHCP v6, DNS, IPv6, get a fundamentals book, mm-hmm. you know, like Rick Graziani's book. Yeah, Rick's start to educate Rick's book is yourself. fantastic. Two, ask your upstream ISP, hey, can I get IPv6? And how would that look? And then three, ask your regional internet registry, hey, could I get a 48 of provider independent address space? And go back to that ISP that you have and say, hey, if I had provider independent address space, how would that work with my class of service? You know, and start to then formulate a plan that is long-term, sustainable, avoids vendor lock-in, gives you options in the, in the future. Yeah, there's a whole set of challenges. We're gonna have we're gonna park that for another show. We're okay. gonna de- we're gonna debate that one for another show. <laughs> okay, because <laughs> I think there's a lot in there <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to go through, especially on the on, on the provider independent side. I think that that mm-hmm. that we should we probably even should get someone from Aaron maybe, <laughs> but mm-hmm. <laughs> to talk through it. Yeah. there's a lot going on there that I think is is for a lot of smaller businesses. There's a whole set of challenges and, and maybe and maybe you know administrative burden that. That might be, you know, outside of their reach. So that'll be an interesting discussion. Well, hey, I mean, unlike V6, we've run out of space for this podcast. You know, hey, Anthony, thanks so much for bringing up the topic for the show. And uh, if you, uh, dear listener, have some questions, ideas, or just, you know, don't agree with something that we're saying, 
let us know. You can do the whole head over to packetpushers.net slash FU for follow-up. And and uh, we really appreciate, you know, what all our listeners have to say and, and the fact that you're listening, you know, thank you for that. You can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter too. Tom's at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue. And I'm at E. Horley. Uh, thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find each of us on, on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. If you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, hopefully you're listening on Spotify too. And if you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break podcast. They're all, all that other great technical content is over at packetpushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.